Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Hello there, good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. We are here, as always, to answer your questions on the most important issues any human being could ever consider. If you've got questions about having a personal relationship with God, as that relationship is revealed in His divinely inspired Word, the Bible, we're looking forward to hearing from you. As always, any question from on the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you want to dig deeper into God's Word, maybe a passage or two has raised more questions for you than has given you answers. Hey, let's explore God's Word together as the broadcast unfolds. Maybe you'd like to talk about the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. A lot of people asking, uh, what do you think this world is coming to? Well, our standard response to that is an end, at least under current management. How close are we to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Give us a call. We'll be happy to kick around those issues or any other controversies you'd like to look at through a decidedly biblical point of view. Uh, Maybe you could use some guidance and direction about current uh, issues going on in your own life. Maybe you've been asked a tough question about the Christian faith, or maybe you've always had a difficult question, and uh, you couldn't find a no harm, no foul, non judgmental place to get your question answered. That's what we're here to do each and every day. Sean, how can people get those questions to us? Well, if you're joining us on one of our radio affiliates, you can email us at questions, that's plural questions, F O R hope at gmail.com. That will remain open and available and spelled out for you if you're joining us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll have that in a banner below our smiling faces, as well as an opportunity to send your questions to us directly as we are live streaming. On the right hand of the screen on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, click on the Watch Live tab, and there you can engage with us face-to-face, as well as have a countdown clock to our next broadcast, if perhaps we aren't live when you check in. Notice, well, we'll be uh, live streaming and, uh, I guess, airing, not live streaming, but uh, uh, showing the previous broadcast as well. You can make use of that resource at any time. And if you want to use social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Note, if we aren't streaming there for technical reasons on our part, uh, if we get taken down, we will still be available on our website. We want to make sure we're prepared for that eventuality and that uh, the commute for all of you is a short adjustment from one tab to the other. We encourage you, most of the traffic, to go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And we also uh, want to... Uh, give a word of appreciation for those listening to us on SoundCloud. Check yeah. the yeah. Uh, uh, analytics recently. seems like we've been having a lot of traffic there. We hope that you all are edified, exhorted, and comforted as God's Word sets out to do. And since it is His Word that we're talking about, why don't we start in a word of prayer and see where He takes us on the broadcast. Okay, let's do that. Father, I thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to seek you and to draw close to you and to be able to uh, take a look at this world, not only the world around us, but even our inner world, Lord, what's going on in our hearts through the powerful uh, and life-changing truth of your word. We pray, Father, that your word would uh, dominate our discussion, that uh, you would take it and minister to it in a way that edifies and builds up people's knowledge of who you are and what your word has to say, that exhorts them, that uh, causes them to be able to apply your word more skillfully in their lives, but mostly comforts them, 
reminds us of the wonderful grace-based relationship we have with you where nothing can separate us from your wonderful love. So, Lord, uh, we thank you that you have promised to be here uh, with your children to guide us into all truth. Do that miraculous work now. We look forward in anticipation to coming away from this uh, broadcast and podcast with a deeper relationship with you, wherever we are. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, uh, obviously, given the narrative has shifted from uh, plagues and pestilences to wars and rumors of wars, uh, a lot of attention has been put, I guess, on uh, the hearts and minds of many people regarding the Ukraine invasion, and unfortunately not in an informed manner. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg on his website did a poll uh, regarding the prophetic significance significance of the Ukraine war. The percentage of people who believe that this is a direct fulfillment of prophecy, apart from the general sense, wars and rumors of wars, which we don't deny, is, uh, well, I can speak for myself, frankly discouraging. Well, uh, the question uh, specifically asked, it was done through the Joshua Fund, uh, which, by the way, if uh, you would like to get involved in a ministry that is definitely hands-on as far as uh, not only sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, but uh, meeting the tangible needs of people in Israel, both Palestinians and Jewish people in Israel, the Joshua Fund is a great uh, place to consider uh, investing uh, yourself uh, for the kingdom of God. Uh, Joel does a tremendous job through all of that. But the Joshua Fund also was involved uh, with uh, doing polling questions, finding out where people are coming from. And the survey that uh, made uh, the headlines in the Jerusalem Post today said, do you agree or disagree that Russia's invasion of Ukraine which has ignited the biggest land war in Europe since World War II, is one of the signs that Jesus spoke of in the Bible when he warned that there would be wars and rumors of wars in the last days. You know, I would have to say that uh, the way that question is worded, uh, I would have to give uh, my answer to that question as a qualified yes. Uh, Because uh, although the Bible does speak about an upcoming war where Russia is going to play a key part, as well as Iran and a number of other specific nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, this uh, that we're seeing in the Ukraine is not that. And I think it's very important for us to be able to see that, that Ukraine and the fate of the Ukraine doesn't really have anything directly to do with that particular prophecy. It does have a lot to do, though, with something that Jesus said was a heavenly heads up. Let us know that we're getting closer to the time of his return. Uh, We are told, uh, for instance, uh, in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, he said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's why we say, no, this isn't a direct fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible said that wars and rumors of wars Uh, are going to be, well, standard operating procedure until the Lord comes back. But then it goes, he goes on to say, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Well, this term sorrows, as we pointed out to you before many times, is a word that means birth pains. And like uh, birth pains, they will increase in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. So we are seeing wars and rumors of wars. Uh, Interesting, Sean, before uh, the uh, broadcast uh, on uh, another really great uh, website uh, that I'd highly uh, encourage uh, those in our listenership uh, to uh, visit on a daily basis. 
harbingersdaily.com. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R-S daily.com. Uh, World News Biblically Understood, uh, great uh, resource, has our good friends Jack Hibbs, Amar Sapati, Barry Stagner, uh, Franklin Graham, uh, other individuals as regular contributors there. And, and they really do a great job of highlighting a lot of the biblical issues uh, in the news. Well, one of their headlines at Harbinger's Daily uh, concerns Finland uh, making an overture to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was immediately greeted by a member of uh, the the, uh, uh, Russian government saying if they do that, then bombs are going to be falling on Finland. So we see in this particular uh, incident uh, another rumor of war, if you will, Uh, whether uh, the uh, wheels begin to turn as far as including Finland, which borders the Soviet, former Soviet Union, Russia, as a NATO member, and remember, that's the real bone of contention here as far as the Ukraine is concerned. Uh, the Russians do not want a NATO member directly on their borders. Uh, so uh, the, the, the dust up there is going to be interesting to watch. But these would fit that description of wars and rumors of wars. You know, another one, uh, another incident uh, that I read about earlier today that I think is not getting uh, really uh, much publicity, but is really something we need to pray about. And uh, definitely fits the descriptions that Jesus mentioned here in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, the island nation of Sri Lanka, which if you've ever seen a map of India, there's a large uh, island uh, just to the south of the Indian peninsula. That is uh, used to be known as Ceylon. Now it's known as Sri Lanka. Well, the Sri Lankan government made a decision, you know, pretty much the behest of some poking and prodding from the U.N., that they would no longer use synthetic fertilizers as far as the basis of producing their crops. Well, the use of organic-only fertilizers in Sri Lanka apparently has created a situation where the government is forecasting starvation-like conditions unless things are reversed rather, rather, rather quickly. Been a little while since we have heard about a famine breaking out within the world, Sean, but uh, it does appear that uh, one is in the offing for Sri Lanka. And these are just the kind of things that Jesus said uh, to take a look at. And they will uh, show up on the scene. They will increase in intensity. They will galvanize our attention. And then like birth pains, suddenly they will go away for a while. The difference is we're starting to see these things come in frequency and intensity. The, the lag in between these wars and rumors of wars, uh, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, and so on, uh, it's definitely uh, narrowing. So uh, very important for us to keep our eyes on that. Uh, we keep our eyes on uh, the latest uh, reports coming out about variations on the Omicron virus and uh, another potential uh, lockdown uh, Dr. Fauci is showing up again on the uh, news broadcasts and so on, talking about the possibility of these sort of things. Uh, in Shanghai, China, half the uh, city is completely locked down to the point where people can't go out or get food. If a person is diagnosed with this new strain of COVID, they are immediately deported to a quarantine camp, as they call them. Uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be doing anything Uh, to slow the spread of this uh, COVID variant they're experiencing in Shanghai. So, you know, uh, when uh, people will ask me, uh, like uh, in the morning, 
have you uh, caught up on the news today? I just say, well, I'll usually just read Matthew chapter 24, and I'm as caught up as I need to be. So there's a, a bit of a prophecy update for you. And if you've got questions about any of these uh, incidents, any other things related to biblical prophecy, uh, anything related to uh, questions about, uh, say, the timing of the rapture of the church, the identity of the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, the uh, traditional questions that we get, or, or questions about the book of Revelation. Maybe you've tried to read it and it was really challenging for you. Uh, allow us to uh, clarify that during the program. I'm your huckleberry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, start off with a question from Mike, who wants to know, this is in reference to First Thessalonians 4, and uh, just as a note, if you have questions about a Bible passage, and Kim, thank you for doing so, uh, make sure to reference the passage so that we can think about the answer to the question, not just the question. Uh, but the question is regarding First Thessalonians chapter 4, in noting, the Bible says, as believers, we should not mourn as unbelievers. Now, what I think you mean by that, Mike, is we shouldn't mourn the same way. Not that we shouldn't mourn at all. Jesus yeah, mourned. Yeah, it's an important in, distinction. Yeah, in yeah. John chapter 11 for his friend Lazarus, and also noting as well, the statement doesn't say that. It says, we do not mourn as those without hope. So you are allowed to mourn, but with hope in mind. But the question dovetails off of another uh, topic, which will clarify the difference between as well in a second. Um, hello. Uh, but it says, but what if as a believer, we lose someone who was not saved, then how should we mourn? Thank you. Yeah, Mike, two different conversations. The passage you're citing in First Thessalonians 4 was addressing those who had physically died in Christ, and they were mourning them because they had missed the kingdom. But Paul clarifies the sequence of events in noting, hey, if they're physically dead. They're with the Lord. We're going to them. They're not missing out on anything with us. But the point being made in your question is, what about the person whose faith was essentially left not just with a question mark, but even more morbidly with a period? Yeah. They were not a Christian. They were not saved. They yeah. died sh literally uh, imitating Joseph Stalin, shaking his fist at God one last time. What's, or Beethoven. He yeah. did that too. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what would be the biblical perspective on that? I'm cluing towards Genesis, but why don't you start? Well, uh, you know, uh, Sean, as, as you and I both know from ministry experience, sooner or later, you're going to be in a place where you're asked to uh, either comfort someone, uh, counsel someone, or even perform a, a memorial for an individual who seemingly showed either no interest at all in the things of God or made some pretty derogatory statements about their relationship with God. Maybe the, the last things that they had to say before they departed this earth you know, how do you handle something like that? Well, you know, I've discovered in those sets of circumstances, uh, never, ever underestimate the fact that God can work even at the very last minute. Uh, I, I just try not to write off anybody as a hopeless case. I think it was Billy Graham who once uh, offered the observation that there's going to be two things that are going to really surprise us in heaven who we see when we're there and who we don't see when we're there. So, uh, you know, the, the important thing is not for us to put ourselves in the role of deciding who's in and who's out. Uh, now, if an individual, you know, kind of like Beethoven or uh, like uh, Joseph Stalin, like you mentioned, were uh, just uh, you know, casting invective at God with their last dying breath, 
Uh, and we might come to a conclusion that their life is a cautionary tale, and you certainly don't want to follow their example. But when we're dealing with people, um, and you know, we find ourselves in this circumstance where there's individuals who've had the gospel shared with them, uh, but maybe have turned away from it. Uh, well, a few things I just try to remind people when they say, well, where do you suppose this person is? The first thing I remind them is, is that, first of all, God's priority in all of this is that he desires all to be saved, anyone possible to be saved. By putting their faith and trust in Jesus, he is going to make every single possible opportunity available for them. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says, God is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's will. That's his Priorities. So, you know, I remind of that. The other thing I remind people of is God's word is amazingly and supernaturally powerful beyond uh, our human means to understand it. A uh, famous passage in Isaiah chapter 55 tells us that uh, God's word never returns void, but always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. Uh, God's word goes forth to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. In fact, he has sent the Holy Spirit himself on that mission here on earth. That is the Holy Spirit's main mission, to convict, and that means to convince beyond a shadow of a doubt people that, uh, first of all, they got a sin problem. They're separated from God because of their own turning away from him. Uh, righteousness, that God has made a way for them to be forgiven because Jesus paid the price for them and their sins on the cross when he died. And finally, judgment, that we have to make a decision to say yes or no to God's offer of salvation. He will not bring us unwilling into his forever family. But to as many as received him, the scripture says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So really important to let people know that God's not looking for reasons to exclude people from heaven. He has made every single possible avenue uh, available to get someone to heaven. And does that mean that God could speak to someone when they were in a coma, uh, when they're unable to communicate? It's entirely possible. But it's also possible that that person has hardened their heart to the point uh, where they can't repent. Uh, God is nobody's fool. And so we shouldn't uh, be cavalier with God's offer of salvation. The Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So, you know, I, I share these things and, and then I try to bring it back to a really important verse. And it's a good one that we have the address for. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, uh, we read, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We're going to stand before God someday and we're going to see who's in and we're going to see who's not. And nobody's going to say, well, God, I think you got that one wrong or I would have done it differently. In fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 15, we're told there's a song that's going to be sung in heaven that among the lyrics includes this line, great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord, true and righteous are your judgments, O King of Kings. So really important for us to understand, we are going to be able to see that God gets it right every single time. And that's what I try to remind people of. Uh, don't jump to conclusions. You know, if that person has passed on, then, you know, we can't pray them into the kingdom. We can't do anything further for them in the kingdom, but we can get perspective and wisdom and find comfort to say, well, you know what, God, I'm going to put them in the hands of you. You're the just and loving God, and you're always going to do what's right. And I'm going to let you do the judging, and I'm going to rest in your mercy and your truth and your love. That, that's, that's where I'd leave it. And to me, that's still grieving as 
those um, who actually have hope, not as those who don't have hope. And that's a really important thing to have when you're going through those times, Mike. Yeah, and thank you for the question. Uh, here's a question from Monica, who wants to know uh, who were the three shepherds referenced in Zechariah 11 and verse 8. Uh, let me read the passage here because it is an interesting topic. I'll go all the way to verse 11. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So whoever they are, they didn't have a very positive relationship with God. Then well, I said, Zachariah for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty, that's in reference to the prophecy as a whole, cut it in two that I might break the covenant, the significance is explained, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So three things to set as far as the context is concerned, and then we can get into opinion pieces as far as how people have handled what we aren't told yeah. in the passage. Yeah, sure. uh, the first thing that we are told is that this is speaking as not only a larger prophecy where God has two staves, beauty and bonds. Beauty is broken, and obviously they are left with bonds or bondage, the aspect of the covenant that right. put them in the state that Zechariah was talking. What was that? Well, after the Babylonian exile, they had returned from captivity, but life was uh, basically being built from the ground up. Yeah. And Haggai and Zechariah were both basically morale officers, for lack of a better term, to remind Israel God hadn't given up on them, but uh, they're going to have to roll up their uh, sleeves and get to some blue collar work before things got easier. And even then. So when we're talking about the immediate Immediate historical context of this passage, Zechariah is clarifying they saw this prophecy fulfilled. They knew that it was the word of the Lord because it verified what God had already done, and it lined up with what God had already said in history, yeah. that they had violated their covenant, reference to the three shepherds. We'll get to that in a minute, but this is what we do know. When they broke that staff beauty, they were left with bonds, and that is what put them in captivity. That's in reference to the past. Now, whether the prophecy maintains its perspective on the past, obviously groups like, uh, you made the suggestion, Monica, that the three shepherds are categorically the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, people who shepherded over God's people. And this is speaking prophetically of them rejecting Jesus. The problem with that interpretation, and again, we're all speculating, this is an opinion, is that uh, it's hard to see where and when they were cut off in one month. Uh, there are vestiges or types of Herodians, or not uh, necessarily in that sense, but politically active and succumbing Jewish groups. There are uh, materialist Jewish groups like the Sadducees, and there are uh, radical uh, traditional Orthodox Jews like the Pharisees. So you'd have to do a lot of guesswork to make this fit into the text, and we don't want to do that. Come to a conclusion and say, how does that fit in the Bible? Right. There's another perspective that says, well, since this is looking towards the past, and Israel's not being necessarily prophetically given something, but reflected on something that's already happened, they also say it could be the offices of the kings, the prophets, and the priests. Right. Um, and that, again, is an opinion not clarified in the text per se. 
So when we're asked the question, if it's uh, not a categorical statement, but an individual statement, uh, who do you think in Scripture could fit this bill? And it's anyone's guess, because as Zachariah was prone to do, ask a lot of questions, that was not one of the answers he was told. However, the audience that he was speaking to understood not the identity of the three shepherds, but the identity of the two staffs. That was the focus of the prophecy. Now, uh, just to clarify a few other things. I'm not dancing around your issue, Monica. We don't know is the short answer. But as far as the three shepherds are concerned, what do we know about what we are told? What does the word shepherd mean? And how would a staff, a beautiful one and a bondage one, uh, apply? Well, it kind of goes back to uh, Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, Part and parcel of a shepherd's equipment. And Boy, if you really want to see some vivid illustrations of this, uh, I highly recommend uh, you get a hold of W. Philip Keller's uh, book, uh, the uh, uh, not just uh, Lessons from a Sheepdog, but his uh, entire anthology uh, about uh, Psalm 23 and uh, the different things that God showed him as a professional uh, shepherd, uh, a sheep rancher, and the insights into the Word of God that he gets uh, as the uh, child of missionary parents in the area around uh, northern Kenya. Uh, the Maasai tribesmen there were shepherds. And one of the things they prided themselves on was uh, building what they would call their shepherd's rods. And uh, they would get a particular kind of ironwood-like tree uh, that was uh, pretty sturdy stuff, and they would work on it and whittle it down. So it would have like a large knob on the end, almost like a a baseball-sized structure. And then the rest of the rod would tail after that. Well, if you were one of these Maasai tribesmen or one of their kids, you would take great pride in this shepherd's staff, if you will. Uh, Those who have seen the Star Wars series, The Book of Boba Fett, it kind of looks like that Tuscan Raider cudgel. Yeah, a a little bit. But uh, what they would do is they would practice with it all day. And if they would say, for instance, see a sheep that was beginning to wander towards, say, something dangerous, like a sharp cliff or poisonous, or even a uh, a predator showing up on the scene, uh, they could throw this staff like a javelin, and they would be so accurate in throwing it that they could either uh, put it right in front of the sheep to scare the sheep back off, or if the sheep was being incredibly stubborn, they could actually strike the sheep and really get its attention. Or if it was a predator coming down, they would use that as a javelin that would actually uh, dispatch of the predator that was trying to snatch the sheep. So that was what the rod was all about. The staff was uh, a, another part of the shepherd's equipment that was fascinating. It was like the shepherd's crook that you've seen. And it would have kind of that long sort of semicircular handle on the end of it that would be used to be able to pull a sheep closer to you or to be able to help a sheep get up that was cast. Now, a cast sheep is a sheep that ends up on its back. Oftentimes, if sheep's, sheep ends up on their back, if they're cast, uh, as shepherds would call it, uh, they can't get back up without help. And We all remember uh, that from VeggieTales. And, and so, you know, the, the shepherd would come in and be able to get them back onto their feet. Uh, the best way to find out if you were dealing with a cast sheep would be to look for uh, uh, scavenger birds 
circling because they knew that the sheep was going to last very long in that condition. So uh, again, every shepherd would have those two things, and it seems that the passage in Zechariah is pointing towards both of them. The idea of having that shepherd's uh, crook, if you will, the staff, uh, seems to be the one that is kind of broken. Uh, the idea that God would continue to try to draw Israel back to them after failure after failure seems to be the one that is broken, the, the picture of beauty there. Uh, but uh, the picture of bonds means that God wasn't done with them. He still had another tool he was going to use, even though that tool included harsh judgment, harsh punishment. So that seems to be what's uh, being dealt with in that issue. Uh, by the way, there's also another theory about who the three bad shepherds uh, were. Uh, one of them uh, seems to speculate that it might have been uh, three of the spiritual leaders that were around during the time of the, the Maccabees and uh, that they were falling down on the job. We just don't know. Or if it was a reference to some false prophets that were struck dead during the ministry of Jeremiah leading up to the Babylonian exile. Or, or even the last to... three kings of Israel. They were all rotten and rottener yeah, <laughs> as, as they, they kind of circled the drain. So, you know, there, there's a case to be made for any or all of them. I think the one about the Maccabean priests and things like that probably has the least amount of uh, heft behind it because it's completely speculative. But uh, whether it's the offices of prophet, priest, priest or king, whether it's uh, the last three kings of Israel that are in view there, uh, we, we really can't be dogmatic about it, but certainly uh, insights in all those uh, particular applications. Yeah, and note the merit and strength of each one. If you say, okay, it fits the bill of three, it fits the bill of an office, a shepherd or an overseer, right? But if I say priests, prophets, and kings, well, priests certainly didn't perform their duties during the exile, and the kings were disposed to this day. But Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are three prophets I can name that were active during the Babylonian exile, so it doesn't quite fit. You say, oh, those were bad shepherds. Well, then are you talking individuals, a whole offices how does it fit and you can see where the speculation can just continue to run riot right so, and yeah. it's not something that we're told and Zechariah, god bless him he always asked questions because when an angel clarified to him do you know what this is he went no no i don't well yeah. that's not something that he was told but if on the other hand we go later in the chapter something that we are told and that we can speculate on with more uh I guess, uh, certainty than the first three shepherds that yeah. were mentioned. The yeah. last corrupt shepherd we know is a foreshadowing to the Antichrist. And if you have a follow-up question on that, Monica, feel free to ask. But thank you for the topic. It's always good to uh, test our uh, testing muscles, if you will. Hey, uh, speaking of Old Testament prophets, I uh, got a question from Kim on our uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com uh, uh, website, ccftucson.online.church. If you want to follow us there, you certainly can. Uh, her question is, what does Isaiah 65 and verse 17 mean? And it's a, a really interesting scripture you bring up there, Kim. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And we could read verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create for behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing and her people a joy. 
Uh, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor shall the voice of crying. Now, that sounds kind of familiar. People ask, is this referring to the new creation or is this referring to the millennial kingdom? People will say, it won't be called to mind. Is that on our part, in a social and legal part, or just on God's part? Or yeah. are these other yeah. issues here? Some, some people really freak out about this because uh, they think that somehow... Uh, we're going to be like Star Wars droids and given a mind wipe. Uh, we're going to go Earth. Uh, what was that? Tucson? I don't know what you're. What is this Tucson you're referring to? Or you know, kind of getting down to cases. Uh, people say, "Well, will I remember like my lost loved ones when I'm there, or is God just going to wipe them out of my mind?" Uh, you know, I think that last uh, question can be pretty easily answered. Uh, Don Stewart, our good friend, uh, has a great answer for that. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be uh, uh, smarter bigger. here in, in on earth than I will be in heaven. Yeah, I don't expect to be a bigger fool in glory than I am fallen. Yeah, so uh, I think what is being talked about there, first of all, you know, Isaiah 65 and verse 17 and uh, 66, for that matter, uh, are kind of tricky passages because you see interwoven two uh, uh, eras of God's future dealings. You do see some scriptures that are definitely uh, applicable to the thousand-year reign of Christ. How do we know? Because it speaks about people dying during that time and people sinning during that time. When God creates the new heavens and the new earth, we are told that only righteousness will dwell there. The yeah. former things will have passed away. It notes, just like in Isaiah 65, it says, no tears or crying shall be heard in it anymore. But Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, no death nor sorrow nor crying. So there's something missing between the two comparisons. That's why we'd say this isn't necessarily the new creation, but certainly a restored one. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the thing is you read through Isaiah 65 and 66, and you find out, like, in prophecy, uh, there's going to be near fulfillments and far fulfillments in prophecy. There's going to be, uh, you know, because when you're prophesying, literally what's happening to someone like Isaiah is God is lifting them up and beyond time as we understand it. We only understand time linearly, where one thing happens after another happens after another. But we do see in a number of prophecies in the Old Testament how you will see a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. I, there was a great analogy that Chuck Missler, uh, who was a great Bible teacher at Calvary Costa Mesa, a uh, really brilliant guy. He was part of the team that established the Naval Missile Command, West Point grad, or Annapolis grad, I'm sorry uh, about that to get those two confused. But what he said was when we're dealing with near fulfillments and far fulfillments, and, and I think those of us who live in Tucson can really relate to this, it's like looking at a mountain range from a distance. You know, when you look at the Catalina Mountains, at a particular time of day, you just look at it, and it just looks like one big flat wall going up to the very top where you see Mount Lemon up there. But as the sun begins to go down or as clouds begin to play across the mountains, you begin to see that there's like intervening valleys that you're not seeing at first. You just see this one big flat uh, seeming upgrade to the very top. But then you see that that upgrade has intermittent valleys in between. And if um, you're like me, you like to go trail running, uh, you know, you begin to discover 
that there are those intervening valleys that you will go up one, you know, switchback sort of thing, then drop into a particular valley. Uh, I think of the Romero Pools Trail, which is really beautiful. You 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 gain about a thousand fifteen hundred feet of elevation uh, in about three miles. And uh, you find yourself by this beautiful running stream with these cottonwood trees. You feel like you've gone to Colorado uh, from the uh, Sonoran Desert. But then you see, if you're going to continue to go up, there's this place called Romero Pass that you can run to if you're really crazy, about 6,000 feet in elevation or a 3,000-foot elevation gain. And you can see that there are all kinds of intervening valleys in between. But the closer you get, the, the more you see it's not just one flat sort of surface going straight up. Sometimes when we take a look at prophecy, we can look at it as just one flat scene going straight up. You know, for instance, it says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth there in verse 17. Well, we just think, well, okay, that's, that's the final end of the world. But we do see in those chapters the intervening valley of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign that is going to be part and parcel of uh, God's plan to wrap up his dealings here on earth before he creates the new heavens and the new earth. So the closer we get, the, the more we are able to see that uh, those intervening valleys of time are included in these prophecies. So, uh, Kim, I don't know if that uh, analogy helps you out. It helps me, but um, hopefully that can give you an idea of why we see what we see in those particular passages. So just to recap regarding the interpretation that, oh, will our minds be wiped? Uh, that doesn't jive well with 1 Corinthians 13, noting that when we are uh, made whole in part, that which is perfect has come, we will know just as we are known, not right. that we'll know less or be reduced. And that's the key phrase right there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because people say, well, how could I possibly be happy in heaven knowing I have unsaved loved ones who aren't in heaven? Well, the fact of the matter is uh, we will know as we are known. In other words, we will see perfectly through God's point of view without any of the fog and haze and, and, uh, and uh, distortion of our fallen sinful nature anymore. Go back to that passage in Revelation 15 the song that's sung in heaven is uh, just and marvelous are your ways. True and righteous are your judgments, O King of glory. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. And uh, we'll even be able to see our closest relationships that were either redemptive or perhaps even illustrated a rejection from God through that particular lens. I, I don't see that now, neither do you. Uh, but then we will. But it's not like we're going to be a bigger fool in heaven than we are here on earth. And then likewise, comparing the new heavens and the new earth, that won't necessarily be the new creation. It does fit two-thirds of the bill, but if you have to hammer in the puzzle piece, it means it belongs somewhere else, yeah. even if it's just one of the little knobs. Those are always the most frustrating. Yeah, too. exactly. So let us know if that helps you out, Kim. Uh, here's a question we've been meaning to get to all week, but you guys have just been so while participating and giving us so much joy in our ministry. Anyway, uh, David wants to know, um, is the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, biblical? Uh, he listened to a sermon on John 3.16 where the New English translation was used and explained that the verse does not say God loved the world so much he gave his son, but that God revealed his love in a specific way in reference to the bronze serpent so that those who believe in Jesus look up to him for redemption, receive God's love. Now that's edgy. Uh, was just interested in your thoughts because the idea is that God does not love everyone, or at least John 3.16 doesn't make that case. I wasn't sure how to felt 
deal about it because Romans 5, 8 says that God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. Glad you're just... I, I, think, I think that clears it up, doesn't it? Well, yeah. and yeah. Let, let's, yeah. I guess, yeah. hammer the point home. When we're talking about what a pastor said and what the Bible says, it's the same reason why we encourage you as often as we can check up on even the things we tell you and why you should only listen to us insofar as our statements can be plainly backed up by Scripture. Otherwise, we'll clarify when it's an opinion, and you can take that for what it's worth. Uh, Since the Gospel of John is what's being said in question here, and again, anyone listening at home, uh, if you have internet access, go to BibleHub.com. It has access to many different Bible translations. It's really good. NET translation. It doesn't say that. But all that being said, uh, I guess this pastor had a uh, axe to grind with people who were... That never happens with pastors. No, no, we're we're totally (laughs) infallible. But uh, when it comes to this issue, um, I guess let's just... They mentioned John, so let's stick with John. What other books did John read and write, I guess, in this case? What was the Spirit used through him to to put into paper? And does that jibe with that interpretation? Well, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Not just those to whom have received him? In other words, what this is saying is the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to save everybody in the whole world. Not just those who look up to him, as John 3.16 apparently says, and receive his love? Well, that's key in terms of making that love a reality in your life. But But whether we accept it or reject it, it doesn't diminish its existence. And that's the point that John's hammering. And he makes the same point again in the book. This is uh, 1 John chapter 4, where it notes not just receiving God's love, but revealing God's love. How is that manifested? This is verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, here's the kicker. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how is that demonstrated? That he sent his son to be the propitiation, there's that word again, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice he says we ought to look up and acknowledge that fact in some bizarre Calvinistic twist on John 3.16. Right. Anyone can come to the Bible, again, with a goal in mind. But if other passages either directly conflict with that conclusion or the passage in of itself is kind of struggling under the weight of all of the doctrine that's being put on top of it when the language can stand. Uh, I've played enough games of Jenga to know that you don't start taking blocks off from the bottom. You want to make sure it's stable through and through. The point being made, though, is this, John, or David, excuse me, when we're 
speaking of John, uh, when we're talking about John's perspective and the insights that he provides, again, through the inspiration of the Spirit, but from his mind and perspective, he was the kind of guy who knew the love of God. Uh, one of the last recorded sermons we have from one of his disciples, the early church father, Polycarp, uh, he made the observation that uh, when he was teaching in Ephesus, you know, he's an older guy, it's the ancient world, so they don't have arthritis medication and stuff, and he, you know, he gets up there, uh, sits down, and, that, and everyone gathers around to listen to the teacher, and uh, his whole sermon is documented for us. I've taken the time to commit it to memory for your edification, he said, in Greek, beloved, let us love one another. And that was it. It's a real easy sermon. Be done. <laughs> but of all the things that John would I could take, take notes away, on that one. <laughs> yeah, of all the things that John took away from literally being the one to be given the revelation of Jesus Christ, to write probably the most popular and influential of the four Gospels in emphasizing the deity of Christ, yeah. a first through third John and some of the most essential apologetic ministries when it comes to understanding the nature of salvation. And the only thing that he found at the end of his life is worth sharing was, man, that God loves us. And what's interesting about that, too, is when uh, uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, he always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, not to the exclusion of others, of course, but that was his impression. Now, if we were to then put on John the idea that God's love is limited in some bizarre Islamic way, that God only loves those who love him first— that God only saves those who look to him first, well, that's not only in contradiction to several passages. The Spirit's the one who reached out to us for salvation, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. But even throwing all that aside, when we understand the nature and character of our God, the only reason we have any hope is because he committed himself to us, that he reached out to us, that the more and more we mess up, the more and more we realize, man, God knew what he was getting into when he saved me, because while I'm disappointed that I just saw this happen, he saw it coming. Yeah, you can't, you can't let God down. Yeah. Did you know that? Because he sees the end from the beginning, right? Right, and so then building on the point of the bronze serpent, what's the emphasis, that God's love is limited or that God's love is available? What's the emphasis of John 3.16, that God's love is exclusive or that God's love is available? Yeah, you want to come to that conclusion unless, of course, you were bringing a lot of baggage to the passage. And one of the things we really encourage people to do in personal Bible study is to avoid reading into a particular text and make it our business to read out of a particular text. And the difference there is crucial. If I look at something and say, well, you know, oh, gosh, you know, the Bible says something about, uh, you know, uh, the love of money being a uh, root of all kinds of evil. And I, I really like uh, my money. So, uh, boy, that can't mean what it says. So it was just talking about the particular money back they had back then. And, and he was saying, don't love, you know, those uh, Roman coins because they have Caesar's image on them. And if you really understand this in the original, then you're going to see that it's not about my greed. It was all just about, you know, the, the godlessness of those poor people back in Ephesus back then. Now, what about what James made the point about giving to those who are in need, like widows and orphans? Yeah. And what about so, the yeah, yeah, that... so, you know, I, I, I bring that up just as, as a picture of sometimes the, the handsprings that we go through when we start to feel convicted. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, one of the surest tests uh, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you on a particular area, area is if you're in a situation where you're hearing God's word 
maybe you're in church, maybe you're listening on the radio, uh, podcasting, uh, even this broadcast, and you find yourself thinking, boy, I sure know somebody who needs to hear this. Chances are it's the Lord's way of saying, yeah, and it starts with you, you know. So, yeah, there you go. Conviction were fun, spiritual growth would be easy, but yeah. uh, here we are. Uh, Kim had another question uh, regarding God does not hear the prayer of a sinner. Is that true? Uh, she has times where she feels, we all do, that we're talking to a wall when we pray, but the good news is truth isn't determined by the metric of our feelings or our experiences. We can talk to God, feel like he's not listening, and he hasn't gone anywhere. We determine that through his word. But the passage that you're referencing that's usually used to conclude this is in John, still there, chapter 9, and uh, in verse uh, let's see. Um, I want to set up the whole context because it's such a beautiful moment, but nonetheless, I guess I'll just start with what's relevant to the question. Um, Jesus had healed a man who was born blind. It was after a conversation with his disciples that's really important in dealing with a lot of atheist objections. People said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. So take that to heart. Yeah. But uh, they basically let him go on his way. And the uh, religious leaders of that day, you know, he had been blind all his life. Ever since they had known him, he had a cane. He doesn't have the cane no more. What's going on? Well, they start uh, examining him, and he makes this observation. Now, notice, he makes this observation. Let me start in verse 24. They, said, they called again the man who was born blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man, the one who healed you, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I, I, I like this guy. <laughs> oh, He's gosh. having fun with him. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. <laughs> now, here's where we get to the question. Now, verse 31, We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, that was the correct observation. Right. With his knowledge, he was able to piece together nighttime, daytime. <laughs> Bad. Good. <laughs> if this guy, as the Pharisees are advertising him, was not on God's side, this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to see. But if, for those listening on yeah. radio. But if, on the other hand, he were to make the observation, God doesn't hear sinners. Now, that's doctrine. It's in the Bible. Quote John chapter 9 and verse 31. Or Yeah, so uh, we need to take that to the bank. If you're sinning, God's not going to hear you. He won't hear your prayers. Well, that's kind of missing the whole point of the conversation because you can also use that same logic with quotations from Satan. Yeah. <laughs> you can quote chapter and verse Satan statements in the Bible. It doesn't mean that they're correct. But if on the other hand we'd say, what was the crux of the whole issue, pun intended? It was, this guy Jesus 
has something that these guys don't. He performed a miracle which shows that God's on his side. And what's even more relevant is that in the following verses, he realizes this guy isn't on God's side. He is the side as his God. He worships him in the same chapter. So noting this point, when we're talking about God not hearing sinners or using that sort of passage, he wouldn't be able to hear anybody because all y'all me included especially. But if on the other hand we were to say what was the whole point of the conversation, what was the conclusion, that in spite of their fallen sinful traditions about God that inconsistently uh, abounded just like they do today, we need to say what was the one thing he got right. Jesus was right because of not what he said but what he did. Right. Then he follows up on it by seeking Jesus out and comes to an even deeper conclusion, not saying, oh, uh, Jesus, can you hear me? Because I'm still kind of a sinner. You know, uh, I realize I'm talking to you, but I figure out I can't hear you. No, he leaves all that nonsense behind. He's realizing you are who you say you are. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. And, and you know, it, the, the tricky parts of all this, obviously, uh, you know, as David prayed, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Uh, some people will say, if there's sin in your life, God's not going to hear your prayers. Well, you know, the definition of hear, I think, is really key. It's not like if there's some sin in your life and who doesn't have some area of sin in your life, that God just turns down his miracle ear and says, hey, what was that? Couldn't hear you. Uh, no, like Habakkuk one where it says you are of two pure eyes to see evil. It doesn't mean that you become invisible to God if you sin. Yeah, but the idea of hearing is like gaining a hearing from somebody. Uh, if someone hears you, uh, it is the idea that they have responded favorably to your request. And in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 14, it says, Now, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So that's the idea behind all of this. You know, God does not hear sinners. In other words, God isn't going to do some miraculous manifestation to lead his people astray. Uh, God is going to bless the ministry of the Messiah, uh, who's doing things in an unprecedented way, like healing people who are born blind and such. So when sometimes I think zealous pastoral types who are getting tired of uh, people in their flock uh, kind of giving it a bad name by living double lives and stuff, try to drop the bomb by saying, if you've got sin in your life, God's not going to hear you. Well, you know, again, we need to be sensitive to confessing our sin to God when he brings it up because we know he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. We don't want to have static on the line in our walk with God. But to say that we've got to have some kind of sinless perfection in our life before God can respond to our prayers is not something that the Scripture says. What the Scripture says is if we ask anything according to his will, he what? Hears us. Hears us. He's going to receive our request favorably. Why? Because it's the prayer the Holy Spirit inspires that God the Father answers. And, and that's really what's going on in that passage. All right. Let us know if that helps you out, Kim. Um, <laughs> this is a two-parter. I think we can finish up with it, but it, it's giving me the giggles. Um, I won't mention the name because we're kind of going to have fun with it. But uh, the first statement is, why is it wise to believe in other men whom you've never met to tell you what is correct? He intends this as a preface to his second question, which Bible canon is the correct one? Well, I only know of two, and the second one was formed 1,500 years after the first. 
used in response to political disputes. So yeah. I think we can rule that out. 1,200, maybe 1,300. But we'll, uh, we'll yeah. clarify that in a moment. Uh, the first part, though, it really amuses me. Why is it wise to believe in other men whom you've never met tell you what is correct? So notice the hypothetical question is, you know, if you haven't met this person, you have no reason to trust them. It's unwise to hear things from people you've never met. Well, I've never met any of the 40 authors of Scripture. Is it unwise for me to listen to them? I've never course. met the inventor of the internal combustion engine, but I'm still driving my car home tonight. That's not very wise. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it's really foolish and self-defeating if I say, no, unless you've met someone, you have no reason to trust them. No, what do we trust? What they say, not who they are. If I say, well, that person is trustworthy. Why? Well, it's Scott Richards. Why wouldn't you trust him? I've met him. I don't Let care me count you, the ways. Yeah, <laughs> I don't care if you've met him or not. I don't care if you know his middle name or the fact that his first name, in fact, is not Scott. But if I ask the uh, mystery. But uh, if, on the other hand, we're to say that we're only supposed to trust people because we've met them, that's kind of ridiculous. If, on the other hand, I were to say, well, which Bible can's the correct one? Once again, how did they determine the canon, or did they even determine it? Well, yeah, and, and you know, these are really good questions uh, in that, A, okay, we're taking the disciples' word for what happened uh, in the life and death and ministry of Jesus. Okay, the question is, are these individuals who've related these things to us trustworthy? Well, there's certain things, I believe, that make them trustworthy. Number one, Jesus himself selected them for this particular purpose. Secondly, these witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection weren't uh, proclaiming this message because it was going to make life easier on them. It was actually going to make life harder on them, and in many cases, brutally short. Uh, if we take a look at, the, say, the 11 disciples that were left after Judas Iscariot bailed, uh, 10 out of 11 of them died brutal, grisly deaths rather than recant what they had seen and heard about who Jesus was. This is powerful testimony indeed. The, the other one, uh, well, that was the Apostle John, and at one point he got tossed in a vat of boiling oil to shut him up, uh, and that didn't even shut him up. And he could point. have stopped it at any time if he had simply recanted his testimony. He just said, oh, you know, we're, we're just making this stuff up. But so. notice the point as well. That's regarding the New Testament canon. The Old Testament as well, compared to the second option, including Maccabees and Esdras and the others, the writings that they included into the Old Testament and extra chapters in Daniel and Esther, A, didn't come from eyewitnesses, didn't come from people who claimed to be prophets of God, and most importantly, weren't tested accordingly. Just like with the apostles, it's not just who they were that we trust, it's what they said and did and the testability of those things. They got the history right. They performed miracles just like the Old Testament prophets did, and they were verified directly by the people who saw these things. And those additional books that are in dispute, none of them claim to be divinely inspired. No, or they have literal lies in their titles. Yeah, they claim to be written by authors that work, so that's why. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day in the Lord. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. 
And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.